This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, the people of Japan have said their final goodbyes to their former Prime Minister, Abe Shinzo, assassinated on the 8th of July, a day that shocked Japan and much of the world. Abe Shinzo, or Shinzo Abe, as he is more commonly known around the world, was certainly the most transformative post-World War II Japanese leader, the longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history as a democracy, and a nationalist, but also very much an internationalist. Now, two days after the assassination, his party, the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, LDP, and its coalition partner won a convincing majority in elections to the upper house of Japan's parliament. That result gives Prime Minister Fumio Kishida the numbers to pursue Mr. Abe's unfulfilled dream of revising the pacifist constitution for the first time since it was enacted in 1947. What does this mean for Japan and what does Mr. Abe's legacy mean for the Indo-Pacific? Joining me today are Dr. Parna Pandey, Research Fellow and Director of the Initiative on the Future of India and South Asia at the Hudson Institute here in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Dr. Pandey, and welcome, welcome back to Asian Insider. Good to see you again. Thank you, Dinamal. It's a pleasure. Always fun to be back with you. Thank you. And from Tokyo, I am joined by Walter Sim, who has been the Straits Times correspondent in Japan since 2016. Walter, thank you very much for making time in this busy, very busy period for you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Walter, if I may start with you, since you're there in Tokyo, Shinzo Abe essentially invented the Indo-Pacific construct, the free and open Indo-Pacific, and he also championed the Quad the quadrilateral dialogue which groups Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. And he also advocated that Japan should review its national defense doctrine, including possibly even hosting U.S. nuclear weapons. Now, the LDP has the numbers. Will Japan keep moving in that direction, that is, pursuing a more muscular foreign policy? Can you elaborate a bit on the domestic dynamics and sentiment on these issues and what kind of bearing they may have? Yes, most certainly, I think Japan is set to pursue to continue pursuing a more masculine statesman-like foreign policy. We, I think we should remember that Prime Minister Fumio Kishida was also Japan's longest-serving foreign minister under the late Shinzo Abe um, from 2012 to 2017. Uh, whilst the impression is that he is more dovish and he does lead a more moderate Kojikai faction within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, some of his diplomatic achievements um was also to hammer out the comfort women deal struck between Japan and South Korea, while he also had lobbied for then US President Barack Obama to visit Hiroshima and intern Mr. Abe to go to Pearl Harbor. But Mr. Kishida is also not blind to the current security threats that Japan faces on many fronts. He was the one who created an economic security minister position um, to oversee supply chains and also to protect Japanese infrastructure and technology. And of course, on conventional security as well, he is set to further Mr. Abe's pursuit of a statesman-like foreign policy of a muscular defense policy with an eye on three fronts, China, North Korea, and of course, Russia. He has repeatedly said, including at the Shangri-La Dialogue recently in Singapore, that Ukraine today may be East Asia tomorrow. And I think that is a very telling statement for Mr. Kishida. Um, Mr. Kishida, with his diplomatic pedigree, has also effectively carried Mr. Abe's mantle. We see how Mr. Kishida was recently the first Japanese leader ever to attend 
a NATO summit. Uh, reports out of Japan have also said that it was Mr. Kishida who initiated the AP4 meeting amongst Australia, New Zealand, Japan and South Korea on the sidelines of the NATO summit. But while Mr. Kishida wins friends, he is also pragmatic about Japan's security and long before Mr. Abe's demise, and perhaps also partially because of Mr. Abe's outsized influence within the LDP as the flag bearer of the right wing and the leader of the LDP's largest faction. Long before Mr. Abe's untimely death last Friday, Mr. Kishida has already been saying that a review of the 10-year National Defense Program Guidelines, which is a major security policy update um, that is due by the end of this year, will likely spell out a more muscular defense policy. He has promised to double the defense budget to 2% of the GDP within five years. He has promised to acquire preemptive strike capabilities. And this will allow the self-defense forces to make the first move and attack an enemy when they receive intelligence that an attack is looming or imminent. And this is done in the name of self-defense. Um, so this is instead of, of course, making the first move only after Japan gets attacked. And so the LDP uh, government argues that this is actually within the scope of the Pacifist constitution since it is, after all, in the name of self-defense. Let me talk a little bit about the constitution since I'm on that topic. Well, Mr. Kishida has been lukewarm to the idea. He barely raised it enthusiastically, even on the most recent Upper House campaign trail. But he has come out a lot more strongly on the issue after Mr. De Abe's demise and uh, after the upper house election which gave the LDP the Komito coalition partner as well as two other pro-revisionist groups the Nippon Ishinokai and the Democratic Party of the People uh, all of them now have the numbers in both the lower and upper houses public sentiment also appears to be tilting in favour of constitutional revision even though many people are still on the fence a poll by public broadcaster NHK after the upper house election shows that 37% felt that constitutional revision is necessary and this far outpaces the 23% that said this was unnecessary. The rest, of course, were on the fence and I think it's up to Mr. Kishida to convince them that a uh, constitutional amendment is due at this point in time. Uh, I think public sentiment has also been changing, particularly because of China and Russia and moving in favour of beefing up the military, even though um, North Korea has been this um, simmering threat after having firing missiles into the waters between Japan and South Korea and several years ago, so launching at least two missiles over Hokkaido into the Pacific Ocean. Out of Japan, regular news reports talk about increasing Chinese and Russian activity around Japan's waters, be it around the Okinawan waters or be it uh, to the north around Hokkaido. Many Japanese are also shocked by the atrocities that are now being committed in Ukraine. And many are aware that Russia and Japan still do not have a World War II peace treaty if only because of the outstanding territorial dispute. Um, all this is to say that, you know, whilst there are discussions as to whether Mr. Kishida will want to invest a lot of political capital to pursue constitutional revision, to pursue more muscular um, defense policy. But I, I think that it's also recognition of the fact that Mr. Kishida's faction is the fourth largest within the LDP. By pursuing a more muscular and more statesmanlike foreign policy, uh, Mr. Kishida is well poised to cement both Mr. Abe's legacy as well as his own position within the LDP as he can win over party conservatives at a time when the geopolitical situation really is calling for a more muscular, more statesman-like Japan. Okay. Um, broadening the focus a bit, Dr. Pandey, 
what are the stakes for the Quad countries? Now, in particular, I was quite interested to see that Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was among the first, possibly the first, to declare national mourning. And he blogged about his dear friend Abe. Clearly, the India-Japan relationship really burgeoned. How important is it to India that Abe's legacy be continued in this manner? Um, thanks, Tanmal. I would say Abe, uh, Abe has been called the quad father by many people on social media, and I think that's uh, that's apt. Um, and I think it applies not just to the quad, but also the Indo-Pacific. Um, I would say Abe, Mr. Abe was the reason why we have the quad today. He birthed the grouping. He was its consistent champion through the years. I'm sure you recall that in 2007, um, it was at its address to the Indian Parliament. Uh, where he spoke of the confluence of the two seas and a yes. phrase which he remarked that he had taken from the title of a book written in 1655 by Mughal Prince Dara Shiko. And that's the speech in which he called upon India, Japan, Australia and United States to be the diamond, uh, which would then sort of, you know, uh, preserve the maritime commons in the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. Through the years after that, uh, he kept pushing for an Indo-Pacific or a free and open Indo-Pacific that we call today or what he referred to as arc of freedom and prosperity in the region. And so in many ways, he helped create this notion that the Indo-Pacific is a security and economic, basically created an architecture for that region, which we today are living through and seeing and witnessing what is happening. So I would say Prime Minister Abe was critical to that. When we come to India, it's sort of, you know, India and Japan, as I'm sure you know, have very old historical ties. But Prime Minister Abe visited, I think the first uh, Japanese prime minister to visit, to visit India three times. He had a very close personal relationship with Prime Minister Modi, dating back to when Prime Minister Modi was chief minister of Gujarat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he knew him quite well over the years. And what transformed was that from primarily a relationship between an aid donor, because Japan is one of India's largest bilateral donors. It transformed into an economic partnership and then a security or a strategic and economic partnership. And that's what the India-Japan relationship is today. So for India, Japan is critical. Japan is not just an Asian country, but an Asian ally or partner. Of the four quad countries, India is closest to Japan, sort of among all of them. And India would like Japan to play a bigger role India would like Japan to play a bigger role, not just in Asia and beyond. And I believe one of the reasons is that India has never seen Japan's rise as a threat, just as Japan has never seen India's rise as a threat. And the things that Prime Minister Abe did was that he helped uh, sort of, you know, it was under him, I believe, that Japan and India signed the civil nuclear deal, which Uh helped get over some of the issues when in 1998, Japan had also imposed sanctions on India after India's nuclear test. So it was a recognition of India as a sort of Asian power, as a global power, and as a country which uh, which Prime Minister Abe and Japanese leaders believe should play its its role in the global on the global stage and in Asia. Right. So uh, staying with you for a moment, Dr. Pandey, um, in the previous during under the previous US administration of Donald Trump, uh, Mr. Abe had to a large extent stepped into the space vacated by the United States. You know, he became a consensus builder, you know, a global consensus builder, and certainly for Europe and North America as well. Uh, so this, a more assertive and consistent Japan would probably make up for the potentially sporadic nature of the US, right? Which who knows what's going to happen in the 2024 election, right? 
I agree. And three reasons. One, um, and I'm sure you know this and Walter knows this well, Japan gives a lot of developmental aid and assistance. And yes, there is some historical legacy in East Asia and Southeast Asia from the past. But Japan, all surveys show in the region that Japanese aid is welcomed, Japanese investment is welcomed. Because countries don't see Japan as asking them to either, you know, sort of side with Japan or not side with Japan. Japanese aid is not tied to sort of, you know, you're voting with Japan or you're agreeing with Japan. Rather, it is given to build your economy, to invest in your economy. Uh, there's sort of, you know, there's no elite capture. There is, there's, there's no taking over your port if you don't, uh, if you don't pay back a loan. So it's not seen as a problem. Yes, historical sort of it will take a long time to get over, but sort of there's an, there's a developmental uh, part of it. Infrastructure, if you recall that the quality infrastructure initiative and the Asian Development Bank, all of which most of the funding comes from Japan. And Japan has given that to the entire region before all the other initiatives started before BRI and OBOL. And third, um, sort of, you know, there is a sense in Asia that Asians should be able to sort of, you know, ally and partner and take care of themselves in case external powers are not there. And in that case, Japan is viewed as a country which sort of, you know, which will be, which is dependable. Japan is not going anywhere. Japan is Asian. There is no way Japan can go. Just as India, we can't leave our geography and we are tied to it. And final point there, Japan has issues with China. It has issues with Japan, sorry, with Russia. India has issues with China. All the countries in the region have border disputes with China. Um, and so Japan understands the concern that you have to live with a very big country with who, who is your largest trading partner, but with whom you have border issues. So how do you manage the relationship? How do you balance the relationship without putting demands on a country? How do you help that country manage its relationship with a much larger neighbor? Very interesting. Walter, back to you for a moment. Mr. Abe was actually also called a divisive figure in some quarters, both at home and abroad. His attempt to forge a new sort of confident Japan free from the shadow of its own, his of its own history did not go down that well in South Korea or in China, given both countries have historically been at the receiving end. Do you anticipate blowback domestically and friction regionally as Japan moves along this path? Well, not so much in South Korea, I would say, because I think the current South Korean president, Yoon Suk-gyul, also, is, is also trying to make amends and trying to repair the broken relationship that South Korea has with Japan. Uh, we, we see reports out of Seoul that um, Seoul is taking the initiative to kind of set up a fund, I believe, for the forced wartime labor issue that came up during the administration of the former president, Moon Jae-in. So in terms of South Korea, I don't foresee that great of an issue in terms of blowback over historical revisionism claims. But I'm not so sure about China because, well, China is kind of seen as the on the other side of the fence, even though Japan is trying to maintain this strong relationship it has with China economically. China views Japan's actions very skeptically. It thinks that Japan is kind of acting uh, as a puppet of the United States administration. It sees Japan's attempts to be more muscular in terms of its security with wariness. Uh, and, and I think that it's prospect that you know Japan's aggressive um, defense posture going forward might spark an arms race 
um, especially with Japan coming under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Uh, domestically, I think with the shift in uh, sentiment, uh, there probably wouldn't be that big of an issue because I think especially a younger generation of Japanese, they are aware of the potential of the country coming under threat. And so in terms of history, in terms of historical revisionism, I do not think it's that big of an issue, even though, of course, Japan being a peace-loving nation would really want to avoid the prospects of being drawn into war. Fascinating juncture of history. Uh, Dr. Pandey, I'll give you the last word. Would you like to add anything as a parting shot? I'd just like to echo what you said, which is that Prime Minister Abe will end up being remembered in history as the most significant Japanese prime minister in the last few decades, because we will sort of, uh, his quad Indo-Pacific, sort of, you know, the rise of Japan. In the end, everybody will say a lot of it had to do with what Prime Minister Abe did. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Parna Pandey, Walter Sim, thank you very much again for joining me on Asian Insider. Thank you. Take care out there. Thank you so much. Thank you. That nicely wraps this episode of Asian Insider. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of next month. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.